Please stand with me as we read from Mark chapter 14, verses 66 to 72. This is the word of God. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him, and he began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But he again denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray before we look at the text. Why do we pray a lot? Because we're dependent. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we are very dependent people. We are sinners indeed saved by grace. We have the very indwelling presence of your spirit within us. And yet, we're all over the place. Make the word come alive. We ask in our minds and our hearts, help us to maintain the locus of our focus this morning as on the king high and lifted up. Help us to see ourselves in this text. And more greatly than that, the king of glory, your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Uh, over the last year and a half, um, we have been looking intensely at Jesus, fixing our eyes on him by way of his earthly ministry so as to better understand him. Through the unfolding of Mark's opening statement in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, that reads, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, we have seen who he really is and what kind of Savior we have. This morning, we're given a glimpse of what we are like. And Peter here um, ends up being a very good mirror for us to look into so as to see ourselves. Make no mistake about that. Peter is the, the disciple that shows all the warts. Everything's there to see. And, and that's a very realistic portrayal 
of discipleship to this very day. It's a discipleship that's up and down. It's, It's on the very heights one day and the very valleys the next as followers of this Lord. See, see, Peter is the disciple who falls more than just once. He shoots from the hip. And I think that as we reflect um, on our own discipleship and following our Lord Jesus Christ, um, we can identify with Peter perhaps more than we can, say, the Apostle Paul. At least I can. Now, sandwiched between the trials of Jesus, that is his trial before the Sanhedrin, and then his trial before Pilate, that is his trial before Jews, and his trial before Gentiles, here uh, we're given an account um, of Peter's own personal trial, sandwiched between the Lord's trial. Remember, uh, this gospel is written by John Mark. History tells us that that he wrote it under the direction and witness of the apostle Peter. Given to Mark from the recollections of a man into whose heart such failure is forever etched. Right there in his heart. He provides John Mark, a couple, two or three decades later, this account. So we're going to look at Peter this morning. Now, we, we will get to Jesus. In fact, we will need to get to Jesus, um, especially after um, having looked at ourselves through the mirrored image of Peter. For then you, you must run to Jesus quickly. Because after all, this account is more about Jesus than it is Peter, as we shall see. Okay? But first, um, let's look at Peter on this night. Now, remember um, the context immediately after Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, those um, who came with clubs and swords escorted him um, first to the home of Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the sitting high priest um, at this time. Um, Annas, um, we're told in in John 18, um, John's account, um, that he held a, a brief preliminary hearing Uh, which was nothing more than an illegal attempt to gather false testimony against this innocent man, the Lord Jesus Christ. All the while, the Sanhedrin were being assembled in his son-in-law's home, uh, probably just on the other side of the courtyard, for which Peter stands here in this account. Um, They're assembled together, rubbing their hands, wringing their hands in anticipation for Jesus to be brought in. Court in the middle of the night which was contrary to the law. So the kangaroo court convened after trumped-up charges 
a number of lying witnesses who didn't get their story straight, as well as um, accusations of blasphemy. Um, they, they spit in his face. They struck him with their fists. Um, others slapped him and said, prophesy to us. Who hit you? You see that in verse 65. Now, while Jesus is on trial before Caiaphas, and while Israel, unbeknownst to them, is on trial before Yahweh, another personal drama is being played out in the courtyard down below. Where Peter is experiencing here his own humiliation. Now, this courtyard, as I said, was probably a shared courtyard um, between the home of Caiaphas and, and Annas. And it's there, remember, that Peter was warming himself as he sat, notice, verse 54, um, with the guards. Peter had followed him at a distance. This is after the arrest in Gethsemane. And right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Cold spring night. So Mark um, picks up the story in verse 66 with Peter warming himself. Okay, now remember, earlier this night... Twice, Jesus predicted that Peter will deny him three times. The first time, we find it in John 13 and verse 36. Um, in the upper room, um, Jesus predicted that he will deny him. And then the second time is in Mark 14, 30, um, while en route to the Mount of Olives. Okay, while en route to Gethsemane. Twice, Jesus said Peter would deny him, and that he would deny him three separate times all before the rooster crows twice. Now, it's important to know something about this cock crowing. Um, In in first century thinking, night was divided into four watches. Four watches. uh, The first was from sunset to nine, the second from nine to 12, the third from 12 to three, and the fourth watch from three to six. Um, The third watch of the night, that is from midnight to three, was actually called cock crowing. Cock crowing, midnight to three, because typically, typically the rooster would crow at the beginning of that window of time, and then again towards the end of that window. So what Jesus really is saying here, he's being very specific. And what he's saying is, look, before about 3 a.m., Peter, before about 3 a.m. this morning, you will deny me three times. Though you stand and say you never will. Though you stand and say, I will die with you. So here he is in verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, let's, let's stop there. Um, The the typical upper-class Jerusalem home in the first century were typically um, two-story homes, and in the second story, there was an upper room. Now, remember earlier this night, um, Jesus and the Twelve were in an upper-class house um, in the upper room where they 
participated in the Last Supper, an upper room. Here, Jesus is in another upper room. And down below is a courtyard. So typically, you, you would enter off the main street. You would enter through a gate, through an atrium into this property. And from the atrium or the gateway, you would enter into this, this, this court. So the, the entire home, um, the court was in the center of this home. So here it is. You would enter in. Peter's in the courtyard, notice, below. And there one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. Okay, now notice that this slave girl, um, in the dim light of the fire, um, she, she glances at Peter. He, he's near the fire warming himself. And first she glances at him, does kind of a double take. So notice the servant girl of the high priest came. And seeing Peter, okay, a glance, um, starts to connect the dots between Peter and Jesus um, and, and does a double take and then looks at him intently. And then seeing Peter, so from a glance to looking intently at him, says, you are also with the Nazarene. Now remember, to be from Galilee was to be looked down upon in this day. To be from Nazareth was even worse. What good thing can come out of Nazareth? And yet, to be connected to Jesus the Nazarene was worse of all. So this servant girl, notice, she, she serves the high priest. Um, she's simply reflecting the attitude of her master and his guests over a three-year period of time where they've been wondering, how do we get rid of Jesus, the Nazarene? So she recognizes Peter, identifies Peter as one of those who follow this Nazarene. Verse 68, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, so he moves from the fire in the courtyard back to the atrium, back to the entry, back to the gate, and the rooster crowed. Denial number one. You know, there are many ways we can deny Christ. We can deny him with our words. We can deny him with our attitudes with our actions, with slippery, sophisticated arguments. We try to be philosophical, thinking we're smarter than we are. Or outright rejection. Here, Peter pulls the ignoramus card. I don't know why you would even ask me that. So his first denial, he said, well, uh, what do you mean? I don't know what you're talking about. You know, the, 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 irony, the irony here of his response is actually contextual foolishness. Uh, contextual foolishness uh, with regard to, to his place, where he is. Okay, Galilean fishermen don't just show up in the court of the high priest in the city of Jerusalem to hang out by a fire. 
he would stick out like a sore thumb. Here he is. So now, feeling the threat of the situation, he, he denies association with Jesus. So to escape the pressure, he, he leaves the middle of the courtyard, and he goes back to the arched entry, the gateway. There, there, and there he hangs out. So he, he, he leaves the exposing glow of the fire, and now he moves into the shadows. We'll often do that. We'll just kind of shuffle over here and hang out with the believers here. They're talking about everything but Jesus, so yeah, there's a little too much pressure on that side of the room, so, so let me hang out with these folks and, and look like I blend in. Because Jesus, that name stings. Verse 69, notice the servant girl is very persistent. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. Now, some, some folks say this is another girl. This is the same girl. Read the text. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say, it's the same girl. She says to the bystanders at the gate, at the entry, this man is one of them. And she says that to those who are milling around. Verse 70, but again, he denied it. You know, the tense of the verb here, beloved, has the idea that he denied it again and again and again. I'm telling you, I don't know him. I don't know him. I'm telling you, listen to me. Denial number two. And after a, after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. So here then, for a little while, a little while, Luke tells us, was about an hour later. Okay, Luke's account says it was about an hour later. And Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 27, verse 73, increases the irony of Peter's presence here with this statement. These bystanders said this, you two are one of them, your accent gives you away. Your accent betrays you. Now, scholars tell us that Galileans had difficulty with, with the guttural or, or throaty sounds of Semitic languages. We understand something of this. In our own country, we all speak English. Right, or we all should. But dialects can betray a person as with regard to, to where he was born or where he or she uh, was raised. It, it doesn't take long to discern certain dialects. You know, the, the Texas drawl. If someone's from Texas, I don't care how long they live, say, in Southern California, sometimes they can't escape that dialect. Or if they're from Mississippi. It doesn't take me long to discern someone who's from Minnesota or North Dakota or people in Massachusetts, most specifically from the Boston area. They don't drive cars. They drive cars. Your, your, your dialect gives you away. Your accent betrays you. And here it's evident that Peter is from Galilee. 
verse 71. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Denial number three. Notice, he doesn't even refer to Jesus by name. Notice. But this man of whom you speak. It wasn't long ago that, you know, Peter was saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In here, it's this guy. This guy. This man, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I swear, I, I swear I don't know. So Peter lies about Jesus with cursing and swearing. Hey, by, by the way, this isn't profanity. This is not profanity, but this is to pronounce a curse upon yourself. This is something, uh, Peter would be saying something like, you know, may God curse me if I'm not telling the truth. May God throw down a curse from heaven if I'm lying. And then and notice he swears, which means to take an oath. He'd say something like this, I swear to you by everything holy, I am telling the truth. I do not know this man. Can you imagine? It's even possible that, that he swore in the, uh, to God, who is thrice holy, 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 holy. Thrice denying Christ. So he's doing everything possible to distance himself from the one he calls Lord. My Lord. Verse 72. And immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. Okay, that marks the end of the third watch of the night. So it's about 2.30 to 3 a.m. And, and normally, typically, the rooster did not crow um, but once, but the crowing lasted anywhere from three to five minutes. So imagine Peter as he hears the cock crowing over and over again. This, the second time, he's reminded again and again and again that Jesus said he will deny him three times. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Mirror Peter. Think about Peter. You know, P Peter's not a man who ultimately lacked courage, beloved. This guy was a, a stud. He was no weakling. He, he was strong. He, he was brave. He was the most daring of the 12. He asked the most questions. I mean, who, who got out of the boat and walked on water when Jesus said, come to me? Peter, Peter, who spoke on behalf of the 12 over and over again? Peter. Who was the leader? Peter. Who, when, when surrounded by a cohort of, of guards and temple police, pulled out a, a sword and started whacking away? Peter. Who would you want in a dark alley with thugs on the other end that you have to pass through? Who do you want? Peter. I want Peter. I've been around cowards, and I've been in a situation like that, and, and guys flee, and I'm scratching my head. I've been with guys like that, spiritually speaking. 
within a church context. Times of trouble, they split. Give me Peter. Courageous, bold, a real man, a man's man. Give me Peter. Even so, courage is a gift. Courage is a gift, and with this gift, um, our gaze and focus must remain on the gift giver, God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in our own strength. We, 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 the gaze must be affixed on Christ. Locus of focus, the location of focus, the point of focus. It must be God, the gifter. He gifts us with spiritual, spiritual stamina and, 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 and courage. Because we see time and time again that, that spiritual courage will wane and wither every time we look away from the source, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lesson. Lesson for all of us. There are only two sources of spiritual strength, and one is only a true source. The one that's not is, is to be self-confident. Self-confident. Trusting in one's own strength. Remember what Peter said earlier this night. I will never desert you. If I must die with you, I will, and I will never deny you. They might, I won't. Self-confidence. Where does Peter's self-confidence first show up? If we back up a little bit, just a few hours from this denial. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it shows up in prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. Because while he was in the garden, when he ought to have been praying, he was what? Asleep. He was sleeping. So if you want true spiritual strength and you want to know uh, where true spiritual strength shows up, it's in humble dependence in God's strength. Manifest, especially by way of prayer, dependent prayer. Three times, friends, look at this contrast. Three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, earlier this night, Jesus prayed for strength. And three times and in three trials, he will stand faithful. Three times... Peter was found sleeping when he should have been praying, and in response, in times of difficulty and trouble, he denies his Lord three times, but he was ever so self-assured all along the way. Self-assurance. Jesus took an oath before Caiaphas that he is indeed the Christ. Meanwhile, down in the courtyard below, Peter swore also with an oath that he does not even know Christ. So to rely on your own resolve, to rely on your own promises and your own commitment, your own strength, your own self-confidence, to walk with the Lord, to obey and honor the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a life that pleases him, you will not and cannot remain faithful to him because your dependence is in the wrong place. Or shall I say in the wrong person? I will, I will, I won't, I don't. You'll crash. Major lesson. 
Now, we, 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 we have seen Peter. We've seen in him a, a, a collage of human frailty and weakness all throughout the ministry, ups and downs, times of victory, times of defeat. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, this is not a good-for-you moment that you discern this in and of yourself. Most surely I say to you, you only know this because my Father from heaven has revealed this to you. And then from that point on, he began to teach them how he must suffer and die, be delivered into the hands of evil religious hypocrites, be killed, and on the third day rise again. And then Peter steps in. There's from, from victory to no, Jesus, come here. This is not going to happen this way. Get behind me, Satan. This is Peter. We will fare no better if our dependence in ourselves because we we do not know ourselves like we think we do amen psalm 139 reveals that he knows us inside and out we can oftentimes be self what deceived i'll never deny him i'll never fall prey to that temptation again you're a fool Why is that? As Christians, friends, although we've been made new, we are new creatures in Christ, amen? To the right, the middle, left. New creatures in Christ, yes. Regenerate. We've been born again from above. We are new creatures in Christ, no doubt about it. But we still live kind of a back and forth, up and down, side to side life. Why? Because we live in a hostile place. And I'm not talking about a hostile, unbelieving world. I'm talking about this fallen human body. So there's always a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. We must constantly yield to the spirit. It's Romans 7 life, you know, where Paul says, there's a desire for righteousness in me, but I don't always do it. Every maturing, under, every maturing Christian, I don't say mature because no one's reached the pinnacle of maturity. We're always maturing. Every maturing Christian understands that we live in that dangerous place. Look at, look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. We have this treasure, right? In what? Jars of clay. Drop a jar of clay on the ground from three foot up. Three feet high, what happens? Busted, broken. Okay, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not, not to us. Not to us. Remember, again, back in verse 38, Jesus said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation temptation. So as, as fragile vessels, humble dependence and trust in God and his strength is expressed first, and I believe foremost, by way of prayer. Prayer. How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? Um, Charles Spurgeon, or, 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 how, well, I don't want to ask the question. Hopefully, 
Uh, all of you all are still reading Morning and Evening by Spurgeon. We gave you the book at the outset of summer to read through the summer. That was to just, just to get some traction to keep reading and then praying that text or that morning and evening devotional on behalf of the church, one another. Uh, October 11th, this past Wednesday, was the morning devotional that said this, and I quote, The act of prayer teaches us our unworthiness, which is a very beneficial lesson for such proud beings as we are. The most healthy state of a Christian is to be always empty in self and constantly depending upon the Lord for supplies, to be always poor in self and rich in Jesus. Prayer, while it adores God, it lays the creature where it should be, in the very dust. As the runner gains strength for the race by daily exercise, so for the great race of life we acquire energy by the hallowed labor of prayer. End of quote. That is how we express dependence upon God rather than self. A lacking prayer life, your dependence shows up self-dependent. That's the territory which we enter when we don't pray. So now again, remember, there's an intentional contrast in the writing of Mark here. It's being made between the faithfulness of Jesus and Peter's lack of faithfulness. So Peter's failure here in the midst of the slightest danger is sandwiched between the Lord's complete loyalty to the Father when he's facing certain torture and death. Kent Hughes, um, writing about the faithfulness of our Lord um, in all of this and through all of this, he writes this, and I quote, How did Jesus remain unmoved? How did he do this as a man? Considering the weakness of human flesh, you don't want to answer, well, he was God. And if that was your answer, you need to go back and listen to um, our message of, of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where we explain all that. He fully depended upon the Spirit. He didn't pull from his deity to get through all this stuff. He was fully human. And that's why, he, that's why he staggered in the garden, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Cup of what? The cup of his wrath. He was a man. And yes, he was fully God. The answer is Jesus stood rock-like before the Sanhedrin, then Pilate, and then the cross because he did not rely on his flesh, but on God the Father. Thus, he became the perfect example for all who seek to live out their faith in a hostile culture. How else can a man or woman live out a consistent Christian life except through the renunciation of self-dependence and the cultivation of conscious dependence upon God? It has always been the same. End of quote. Isn't that great? So living and standing for Christ, friends, it's not a matter of willpower or self-determination. You know, resolve. You know, next time, I'm going to speak up for Jesus. Now, this is how we want to pray. Lord, my self-determination is but vapor. It's vapor. 
But Lord, in your strength, I ask, please enable me to do what you've called me to do. Enable me to testify of you, regardless of how my knees wobble, regardless of the butterflies I have, regardless of my trembling fear. You give me, Lord, I ask, please, the strength to do so. Lord, when I'm faced with that temptation again, God, it comes around the corner every week and a half. Enable me, I pray, to run if I must. You, Lord, give me the strength I need. For your grace is sufficient. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. And with every temptation, there is the way of escape. Don't depend on yourself to run through the escape hatch. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I've been there and I've tried to mount and I've always hit my head. Because there's the, the door's not open. You need the strength of God. You need divine power. You need, you need the resident presence and power of the Holy Spirit to do so. That's our prayer. This is what we learned from Peter. So, so standing before Jewish apostates, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Next week, he'll be standing before pagan Gentiles. Jesus was and is and remains faithful to the end. And what the, what's the good news here? Don't miss this. He did this in your place. He did this faithfully for you. All the way to the cross where he will lay his life down as a substitutionary sacrifice, where he will pay the penalty for your unfaithfulness to the Father, for my unfaithfulness to the Father. This is what he did. So seeing here what Peter is like, and, and using Peter as a mirror to see what we are like, question, what is Jesus like? With a bumbling, stumbling, inconsistent disciple. Well, a couple weeks ago, we studied the fact that God knows us inside and out. And this morning, we were reminded that we need to pray and, and, and must learn to say with David, um, Psalm 139, look at it. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me three times. No, I won't. I will not. I'll die with you. No, you won't. No, you won't. Now, Knowing us inside and out can make us feel a bit exposed, amen? You know why? Because we are. Because we are. You are exposed. We are exposed. Yet notice, full exposure, Jesus knew it all. Peter, I know what you're going to do. But remember, in his self-boasting pride in the upper room, Jesus didn't just cast him off. In route to the Mount of Olives, he just didn't say, Peter, go back. Because you're going to deny me. He did not. He continued to disciple him. He continued to lead him into the Garden of Gethsemane. Then he led Peter, along with John and James, further into the garden. He didn't give up on him. 
He knew exactly what he was going to do. He, he knew the words on his mouth, on his tongue, before he ever spoke those words. This is the faithful shepherd. Back to the courtyard. All four gospel records record the crowing of the rooster. Luke tells us something else that happened at that very moment that brought the weight of Peter's sin and denial pressing down on his very soul. This is amazing. Okay, at the precise moment of Peter's third denial, as the rooster crowed again that second time, look at Luke 22, verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly from the gut. Imagine those eyes of Jesus. Locking eyes with the Lord. Now, obviously, Jesus could see from that upper room down into the courtyard. So he was likely near a window, and he locks eyes with Peter. It was either that, or he was being, trans, he was being um, transported from the upper room to a holding cell and happened to pass by Peter, and boom, they lock eyes. In the third denial. But, but consider, okay, consider the majesty here of divine providence. Think about this, how the Father orchestrated this moment. Okay, think about all of the hustle and bustle. There had to be dozens of people shuffling about in the courtyard and out by the gate, and all of this frenzy of these events with Jesus the Nazarene going on about them. And, and here Jesus turned and, and looked at Peter, and no doubt, when Jesus saw Peter, he had an angry countenance, meaning Peter, not Jesus. You have an angry man, defiant, who says, I do not know him. I swear. Think of it. I don't know him. Rooster crows, boom. They lock eyes. And he wept bitterly. He shriveled up at the sound of a servant girl's voice. You're one of them. He melted. And Jesus looks. So question, I think we understand something of Peter's countenance. Let's consider Jesus now. How does Jesus look at bumbling, stumbling Christians? Okay, and what I mean by that is, what is, what is his countenance like? Okay, what would his countenance have been this night? What kind of face did Peter look into when they locked eyes? Well, physically, let me tell you this. It was already a, a bloodied, battered, swollen, black and blue face. Already. His, his beard and hair would have been covered with human spit. There's that. But what did Peter see when he looked into the eyes of Jesus, into those bloody eyes? When, when he looked into those eyes, now no doubt Peter had a look of horror on his face, but what, with what did Jesus look back at Peter with? Now, there's all kinds of looks, all sorts of looks that can communicate exactly how we feel. 
there's the looks that kill. <laughs> looks that kill. There's the I told you so look. There's the condescending glare. There's the rolling of the eyes. There's the look of anger. There, there's the scornful sneer that says, some friend you've turned out to be. Many looks. There's the after all I've done for you look. You do this to me. And perhaps the most painful look of all is the one of utter disappointment. You know, the one your parents give to you when you've done something stupid as a kid and they're crushed. So, what did Peter see in those bruised and bloodied eyes when, when, when he was locked in? There were no words uttered. There's not a word recorded that was spoken. But here's what I think his eyes said. Peter. Peter. I know you love me deep down. I understand the turmoil. I understand the trouble and the brokenness of your heart in this moment. And I love you no less than I loved you before you denied me. That is the look I think caused him to bitterly weep. Now, we must never minimize the denials of Peter. We must never minimize our own sin. Amen? Hello? Amen? Amen. We must never minimize Peter's denial or our own sin, yet at the same time, we must never underestimate the, the, the greatness and the goodness and the kindness of God's forgiving and transforming grace. See, the locking, the locking of eyes with the Lord here produced a brokenness in the heart of Peter, and he went out and wept bitterly, and the difference between his sorrow and Judas's sorrow was one of godly sorrow. Godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation. Worldly sorrow produces death. So Jesus locks eyes and he breaks. Now, you know, I, I don't know if this look of loving forgiveness and compassion was enough to get Peter over the hump and back into the game, so to speak, of, of faithful discipleship. But, but you can bet, if you're a betting man or woman, which you're probably not, and you probably shouldn't, but <laughs> got to cover all my bases up here. But I'm pretty sure it helped. Now, a few weeks ago, um, we studied the fact that Jesus would provide other encouragement after the fact, one in which was at his empty tomb. When the woman, women came that morning, remember the angel's there, and the angel says, go tell his disciples and... Peter, that he'll go before you and meet you in Galilee. And then, of course, there's that breakfast setting on the shores of Galilee 
where Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? How many times? Three. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Maybe you're wondering here this morning as I wrap up, is forgiveness possible for me? I mean, you, you understand it objectively. You go, well, this is Christianity and Christ died. And of course, um, the facts, facts of the matter are that he'll forgive those who repent and believe. But that does not seem to matter if you can't receive that forgiveness or experience that forgiveness deep down in your soul subjectively. Would you agree with that? Is forgiveness possible for those who have flat out denied Jesus? I've been denying him all my life, perhaps you say. Is forgiveness possible for the adulterer? Is true experiential forgiveness possible for the woman who's had an abortion? Or for the man who's paid for one? Or what about those sins committed long, long ago, sins that everyone else has forgotten about, but they're tucked away deep down in your soul, and you carry them with you? That is the guilt and the shame of them everywhere you go. And you wonder, am I really forgiven for that? Perhaps you, you, you fear that you've sinned beyond divine grace, having denied Jesus in one way, shape, or form, and your heart is haunted by the thought of repeated failures before the Lord, that perhaps you've sinned beyond the point of no return. Those who proclaim to be Christ do struggle with that. That's a fact. Well, let me tell you this. If you, by his grace and by his mercy, Open the eyes of your heart this morning, broken, repentant, and look into the eyes of the Lord, so to speak. I can guarantee you that he will look upon you as he did upon Peter and say, I forgive you. I love you. No less than I did before. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm, I, I died for you. I, I, I paid for that. And that locking of eyes, so to speak, will hopefully produce within you, if you're one of those, um, a, a true repentant heart and one who reaches out and receives and embraces the grace of God in Christ Jesus for you. Because this guy, three times, denied that he even knew Jesus, though he boldly proclaimed he never would. That he died with him. He shrank like a schoolgirl. And Jesus loves him, forgives him, restores him. And don't forget this, that, that Peter's story of stumbling was well known throughout the church of Rome. And John Mark, who penned this gospel, his gospel was circulated about three decades after the fact to the church in and around Rome. So those who were struggling to remain faithful to Jesus Christ under the persecution of Rome would have been very encouraged by the story of Peter, the leader of the church. The stumbling, bumbling disciple 
of Jesus. Amen? So, when we sin, and when we stumble, and when we bumble, and when we run, and when we try to hide, never forget the grace of God is always much greater than the sin we commit. So again, don't run from him. Run to him. To him. Amen? So if you find yourselves having been ashamed of Christ in the past, perhaps you showed yourself to be a coward, did something stupid, and I'm including myself, Remember this case of this bumbling, stumbling Christian, disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter, who was forgiven and was actually strengthened to go on, and when you read Acts, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ with power from on high. And then he would go on, tradition tells us, to die as a martyr for the name of Christ and requested to be crucified not like Christ, but upside down, for he's not worthy to be crucified like his Lord. And he remained faithful to the Lord he boldly proclaimed to the end. Never forget that as you stumble and bumble through life. Don't look to yourself. Look to him for the strength that you need to persevere, and he'll grant you what you need, and he'll teach you along the way. And if you fail, he'll only strengthen you to further you on in the way. Amen? Amen. Amen. And it's all because of not what Peter was like, but what Jesus is like with stumbling, bumbling disciples. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word, the words of encouragement that we find um, all throughout um, the gospels, especially with your bumbling, stumbling 11. And Lord, may we, um, not unlike them, when we find ourselves in places where um, we are disloyal, that we'll always run to the loyal, the ever-loyal one, and that is your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, um, is led by your Holy Spirit for the glory of your name, the name above all names. We thank you for your Son's sake. Amen.